This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Coo Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grawl, New Whale. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, the Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore or mythology. We retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, the culture and the history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olihan. I am your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 161 of Fireside. Today on the Irish Storytelling Podcast, we have a folk tale of the sea, of the ocean, and more specifically, of the stream. We have the folk tale of the Alp Luchra, the joint eater. But first, if this is your first episode, good one to begin with. It's a very classic uh, folk tale of the the oldest of fireside standards. It feels like very much getting back to the very earliest of folktales we adapted almost three years ago. But if you do enjoy this, why don't you head right back to the very beginning, to episode one, all 160 episodes ago, and see what we've been building up to over the journey of fireside over the past three years. And if you are a returning listener, as always, thank you so much for your continued support if you have not done so already please follow me over on instagram at fireside bard email me at the fireside at gmail.com if you are not on instagram and if you really want to support me you can do so in a couple of ways you could buy my book my poetry book garden sea a neo-myth of home detailing with poetry about the history religion and mythology of ireland uh, combined with experiences of my life growing up on the east coast there written between the east coast of ireland and the west coast of california Uh, it's a book of which i'm inordinately proud because it's the first book i ever finished and released and people are buying it and thank you so much for those of you who already have and continue to do so you can get it on amazon and kindle version uh, or you can get it in paperback from the headstuff.org store Uh, it's only a 10 euro i think it's like six six dollars or six pounds or whatever according to individual currencies on kindle and it's a tenor, uh, excluding shipping, uh, to order it on paperback. And we can print, order it anywhere around the world. So please do. It's been mostly in the U.S. that it's gone to so far, which is great. Thank you to all my American listeners and supporters who have ordered it. And naturally all around Ireland as well. And a few over in the U.K. But I'd be very interested to see it sent uh, further afield than that as well. Because I know there are you. uh you hidden listeners there in the rest of the world as well. I can see it from the audio, bo- the audio boom data of where the podcast is listened to. Such as you listeners in the Netherlands, in the Philippines, or even in Austria. 0.1% of the countries of the listeners of the, last, uh, of the last month have been in Austria. So who knows, maybe Garden Sea could be going to Austria next. You know who you are. 
Uh, if you don't want the book, you can support the podcast over at headstuffpodcast.com by joining Headstuff Plus, where for as little as five euro a month, although you can pay more if you want, you can gain access not just to bonus material for Fireside, but for all of the podcasts on the Headstuff Podcast Network, and there are more of them each and every month. Uh, I am recording this uh, pretty much immediately after recording the last episode, which the last episode was coming out a couple of days late, whereas this episode will be coming out right on time. So I still have the aforementioned hoarse voice from uh, two months of solid gigging, of singing Irish folk songs and ballads in the Irish village at the World Expo since uh, the middle of December. So I apologize for my, my little John Hurt husk that I have at the moment. Who knows, maybe it will add to the folktale Shanachie oral tradition of it all. Uh, but this is a story I was very, very excited to find. It was a very, very last minute one, but it really opened up a whole new, a whole new avenue for me. So it is from this, uh, this great book that I found that I adapted the Celtic Atlantis from, uh, which was the last folktale we did, which is a treasury of folklore of the seas and rivers, sirens, selkies, and ghost ships. And uh, the link is in the description below for this for this book. Um, but this book has been specialized on world mythologies and world folklore. There's actually been surprisingly little. I say surprisingly, that's just because of my familiarity bias and because I'm naturally looking for all things Ireland and Celtic for the purposes of this podcast um, within reason. Uh, but it has been incredible. And especially to complement our look at Grainne Whale, it feels like the more we learn about the folklore and mythology of the seas, the more we understand the world that Grainne Whale was inhabiting, particularly the folklore and mythological world. Uh, so in the section on this book on the streams, it just had uh, a random section on a thing called an Alp Luachra, which was also known as a joint eater. And there was a very small section on it. There wasn't really a whole story in it because the book is split into, sometimes it tells full stories, but a lot of times it's just kind of details on folklore, which I f sometimes find stuff in, but very rarely would be there be something enough for me to sink my teeth into, stretch out to all the story. But I did a bit more research, and then I found that Douglas Hyde, who is one of the main sources that W.B. Yeats draws from in his uh, folklore book, which was the gospel of Fireside in the early days, and still remains so. It's still the one I revisit probably the most. Douglas Hyde had a book of his own folktales, of which I was familiar, but I hadn't actually got my hands on myself, called Beside the Fire. Naturally, the name stuck with me, but I'd never seen it for sale anywhere, and I think it might be out of print, but I realized that there is actually a version of it online uh, through Wikipedia. Now, most of the stories that are in Beside the Fire are in WB8's treasury of folktales, but to my understanding, this one wasn't, because this isn't one I had ever come across. Maybe I just didn't recognize it by the name, the Alplukra. But I was able to find the story, and I absolutely adored it. It reminded me of some of the very, very earliest tales that we adapted on Fireside, a lot of which I know are still some of mine, and I know are a lot of your favorites as well. Uh, it is... It's quite, uh, it's quite a bawdy and graphic tale, as much as an oral tale can be. And I don't want to give too much away because I think my favorite thing about this is it kind of plays out like a mystery. Uh, you, 
in a lot of folk tales, the audience will know more than the characters inhabiting the story. And I would always like to phrase it like, were it all possible that the audience learns things as the hero does? And this is laid out very much like a mystery and I really, really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed writing it and adapting it. Uh, so I don't want to give any more away, but we will chat more afterwards, of course. But this is the tale of the Joint Eater on Fireside. The Joint Eater. It was harvest time, and on a small plot of land in County Sligo, a poor farmer was sweating under the summer heat. There wouldn't be too many days of Irish summer that you would sweat, but couple that with twelve hours of harvesting, and you'll have back and joint ache to go with it. It was the late afternoon, and the worst of the sun had passed, and lunchtime had had time to digest. The farmer decided to take a break from the hard labour. He lay down in a comfortable bed of freshly cut hay, by a peaceful, hypnotic stream. And by the lullaby of the waters, the farmer faded off to sleep. His quick snooze turned into a four-hour nap, and the farmer awoke with a dry throat, stiff neck, and a dazed head that took a while to remember where he even was. It was too late to harvest any more, and the farmer headed home. His daughter was waiting to welcome the farmer. He didn't seem right to her. What's wrong, Daddy? she asked. I have an awful pain in my sides. It feels like there's something kicking around inside of me. Maybe we should call the doctor. Ah, not at all. Try to sleep it off. The typical Irish male answer to any medical issue. The farmer went to bed and got a good night's sleep. But he awoke the next morning and the pain had intensified. He could hardly stand with the pain as he gripped his stomach. The farmer's daughter took her father to see the doctor. The doctor inspected the farmer inside and out and could find nothing wrong with him. You don't understand, said the farmer. It feels like there's something walking around inside of me, back and forth and side to side. Ah, that's just why they call it a bad bug, replied the doctor unhelpfully. He prescribed tonics and medicines and other primitive remedies of this not particularly sophisticated time for local medicine. The doctor assured the farmer that with rest the pain would succeed, but every day the pain got worse. Next the farmer lost his appetite. Anything he ate didn't seem to satisfy him. He felt bloated and starving at the same time. This began to take its toll on his appearance. He began to lose weight and grow pale. He went to the doctor so many times, the doctor soon refused to take any payment as he didn't feel he was any help. Six long months passed for the farmer and his daughter. Doctors had been sent for all over Connacht, but none were any help. The farmer had grown used to the pain, but his appetite had never returned, and he was now a bedridden, skinny husk of a man. He didn't think he had long to live. But one day a jolly beggar man came to the door. He knew the farmer and his daughter and was always welcome at their home. The daughter answered and said to the beggar man, You're welcome to stay in the barn, but my father is very sick and has not been able to work, so there is little to eat. We only get by because father can't stomach anything himself. The beggar man was intrigued. You say he has no appetite. 
May I speak with him? The daughter was reluctant, but brought the beggar before her father. Tell me, said the beggar man to the farmer, when did this pain start? About six months ago, I was taking a nap on a bed of grass and I woke up and felt a pain in my sides. Was the grass damp? No, it was harvest time. It was warm and dry. Well, was the grass beside a stream? Yes, actually it was, said the farmer. Why? Have you the strength to show me where this stream is? I may have a way to cure you. The daughter said that if there was any chance of healing her father, that she would help him walk. The three arrived at the very spot where the farmer had napped. The beggar went to the stream and got down on his knees. He returned with a piece of herb in his hands. Showing it to the farmer and daughter, he said, It's just as I suspected. Wherever this herb grows, dwell the Alp Luchra. The Alp Luchra? asked the daughter. Yes, replied the beggar. The joint eaters. They're little newt-like fairy creatures that crawl inside the open mouths of people who fall asleep by rivers and streams. They nestle on the inside and feed off the quintessence of life until the host dies. And then they move on. The daughter was horrified. That's awful. What's the cure? There are few cures, said the beggar. But one who will be able to help is the Prince of Coolavon. I have heard he survived the Joint Eaters. We must go and ask him how. There was a great argument between the father and his daughter about whether or not he should go. You're too weak to go. You may not survive. I'll go and return with the cure. We don't know what the cure is. I may need to be there to receive it. Plus, if I am there, we might get in to see the Prince all the quicker. So the farmer, daughter and beggar went to see the prince of Coolavon, who was considered to be the wisest man in all of Connacht. When they arrived at his keep they were initially refused entry, until the beggar said, This man has the Alpluchra in him. The prince was quickly told and arrived at the entrance himself. Come inside, bring this man upstairs. If he has the joint eaters inside of him, we'll be sure to get them out. The farmer was brought to a banquet hall and sat down at the table. A massive plate of salted pork was placed in front of him. The salted pork is particularly good, said the prince. Salted pork, replied the farmer. I haven't been able to keep it so much as an apple down in months. If you want to live, you'll do as I tell you. Eat. With great difficulty, the farmer began to force tiny mouthfuls of salted meat into his mouth and down his throat. The prince stood over him to make sure the food went down, and he wouldn't let the farmer leave. The prince forced the farmer to eat and eat and eat until it felt like the farmer had the whole pig inside of him and he were about to burst. I'm going to be sick, said the farmer. No, you're not, said the prince. You're coming with me to the river by my keep. The prince brought the farmer down to the river and gave him strict instructions to lie on the grass with his mouth open and not to move a muscle until he was told otherwise, while the prince, the daughter and the beggar hid in the nearby tall grass. The farmer had protested, but did as he had been told. He lay there with his gaping mouth open, the smell of salt pork still on his breath. 
A quarter of an hour passed, and it seemed like nothing was going to happen. But then... The farmer began to feel something coming up his throat. He thought he was going to get sick, but he remained still. The others looked on as a tiny green creature gently poked its head out of the farmer's mouth and ducked back in again. Out and in and out and in like a living tongue, like the xenomorph in Alien. Eventually, the foul little newt-like creature leaped from the farmer's mouth and dove into the river. The farmer went to move, but the prince warned him not to. Not yet. Soon the farmer felt another stir, and the prince, the beggar, and the daughter looked on in revulsion as one by one twelve disgusting creatures crawled out of the man's mouth. After the twelfth, the daughter said, How will you know which one is the last one out? Oh, we'll know when we have the mother, said the prince. And he was not wrong, for soon the farmer looked like he was choking on his own tongue. He felt something seven times the size of the others crawl up his throat. They began to cut off the airways, so the farmer reached into his mouth and tried to grab the mother Alplochra. This made the creature subside. No, cried the prince. Now you're frightening the mother. You must not move. For three whole hours the farmer lay waiting. Until at last the mother joint-eater crawled and dove from his mouth and into the river. The daughter ran and helped her father up. It was another several hours before he could speak, but once he could, his first words were, I'm a new man. The salted pork had dehydrated the joint-eaters inside the farmer, and they had become thirsty. With his mouth open, there was only a matter of time before they would return to the water and free their host of this awful parasite. The prince hosted the party for two weeks until the farmer was back in full health, and the beggar man was invited to live with the farmer and his daughter until the day he died. So remember this, the next time you fall asleep beside any body of water, be sure to keep your mouth closed. The End Folks, as you all know, Fireside is a proud son of the Headstuff Podcast Network, which is Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts and a loving home for the creative and indeed the curious. There are so many other podcasts I could recommend to you on the network, some of which inspired me to approach Headstuff myself. Here's a taste of one you might enjoy. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. How do the Victorians invent time? Where do all those pirate cliches come from? Should we all read romance novels? Why are kids so obsessed with dinosaurs? What makes the perfect detective story? What happens to culture and society in a post-apocalyptic world where everything has stopped? Words to that effect tell stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts and at wttepodcast.com. And that is the tale of the Alplochra, the Joint Eaters on Fireside. And I hope you enjoyed it. Yes, I really, I really can't... 
I'm going to try and articulate what it is that makes this so like some of the best stories we've adapted from Fireside. A thing I frequently say is I know a story's good when I only have to read it once and then I can just write my own version of it and not look back on the other sources. This was absolutely one of those. And I found this episode very late. I was reading very late one night and I then did a bit of research and wrote it that night. I think I wrote it at like three or four in the morning. And it just flowed very, very naturally, very nicely. I got it out in one sitting and even the reading of it there flowed incredibly nicely and I feel there's always there's a lot of me in that without me adding too much or even taking away too much. But I think what this is great is so many of these classic fairy tales, and by fairy tales I mean stories about fairies in Ireland, are just like tales of hubris and they're less stories and more just person A encounters fairy, dallies with them, tries to outsmart them or tries to benefit from them and they end up the worst from it or sometimes the odd time the better but usually the worst and the moral is always just don't mess with the fairies. Here we have that structure but we just have more of a story to it and I think that's all in how it unfolds and I did I didn't keep it I didn't delay the re- the revealing of the Alpluchra um any more than the the Douglas Hyde version does and I think just what I the only thing I probably added is there isn't really a description of what the Apolochra are in that story so it must have been quite common knowledge they must have been quite a known fairy this awful like newt-like creature that crawls in your mouth when you're asleep it's like a it's very much like a cautionary tale you would tell children you know don't make don't make faces or it'll get stuck like that. Don't sit too close to the TV. Your eyes will go square. Don't lay beside a stream with your mouth open. The Alpluchra will get you. And then we just also have to get this right out of the way as well. Uh, another wonderful thing about folk tales is they were different primitive cultures' ways of explaining the unexplainable. You know, that's what mythology is as well. Um, just like with the changeling, the idea that a fairy had swapped out your healthy baby for an unhealthy one were considered to be ways to explain mental and physical disabilities in a very primitive time or a, a time before the diagnosis of such conditions. And the old blue it's a tapeworm. <laughs> There's no other explanation there. Like, it's a thing that you get in, it's a parasite that you get inside of you that removes your appetite and eats your food for you. Um, it's a tapeworm. Um, and that's what I meant when it's it's kind of gross. It's it's body and it's uh, quite graphic, especially the removal of the Alpluchra, which reminds me very specifically of an episode in season three of Rick and Morty. I don't know how many of you watch that. I presume a few because it's immensely popular and excellent excellent tv show uh is an episode called morty's mind blowers where they discover that uh rick has been removing that morty has asked rick to remove memories of traumatic events from his life and one of the memories he has to be removed is when he has this gigantic parasitic worm in him and the only way to get it out is with his family uttering loving words 
But as they utter these loving words to him and the parasite is slowly coming out of his mouth, it's taking so long and it's so disgusting to look at that they end up losing interest in it and the parasite starts receding back into his mouth. Uh, And that's all I could think about when I was writing about this man lying on the ground waiting for these creatures to crawl up and out of his mouth. So graphic and gross out as it is, it was just a great story. Um, And we've got it focused on specific characters, you know, very stock characters, the farmer, the daughter, the beggar man, the prince, and the the MacGuffin, the the baddies of the Alpilochra themselves. And there's very, very little else to say, except, I'm delighted to remember this now, I got to include uh, very naturally a a Lord of the Rings reference, which uh, I'm really hoping a few of you noticed. <laughs> and it just, it came up because there was, yes, this cure that the way to get rid of the Alpalucra is to eat a lot of salted meats and then to lie by a stream with your mouth open again and that the Alpalucra will get so dehydrated that they will then crawl out of your mouth and leap on, go on to a new life. Um... And there is a moment in Return of the King, specifically in the film version. Um, to my knowledge, I don't remember this interaction in the books. It may be there, but a lot of the famous film quotes are not in the books. Um, it's when Gimli Aragorn and Legolas arrive at Isengard after Treebeard and the Ents have overtaken it, have, have overthrown Sauron. And Merry and Pippin are sitting there with the stoned heads off them, uh, eating food, having a great time as always. And uh, Pippin just has this line and says, the salted pork is particularly good. And Gimli just says, salted pork. And they are two of the most incredible deliveries of lines ever. And to not further divulge into this tangent more, there's an incredible video on YouTube I haven't been able to find it in ages. I think it might be gone, but I really, really hope it isn't. And if anyone knows what I'm talking about and can find a link for it, please send it to me because it's one of my all-time favorite YouTube videos because from about 10 or 12 years ago, I think it was just called uh, Guy Annoys His Girlfriend with Lord of the Rings quotes. And it is just this guy going around with his phone and just like screaming Lord of the Rings quotes at his girlfriend. <laughs> tormenting the poor woman with this and one of them is just him sitting on the couch beside her just going the salted pork is particularly good salted pork so when i had an opportunity of salted meats in this i could not but resist insult inserting that that's the kind of stuff you do this for and of course the xenomorph reference in alien stephen fry has really made me feel comfortable in putting these uh, anachronistic references in these uh, in these tales because sometimes you feel when you put like contemporary references in it it takes you out of it or it dates it or it's, uh, it just doesn't quite fit but it's actually one of my favorite things in the way Stephen Fry adapts his Greek myths in Mythos Heroes and Troy is he talks to you like he's talking to you in the pub and if you were telling someone a story in the pub you do make these contemporary references and so the one that always comes to my head is uh, when he's describing Atlas, uh, the god who has to, or the titan who has to hold 
the heavens on his shoulders. He describes him like a Bulgarian bodybuilder, bulging. And it just makes it a really, really clear image from him, saying that you're probably used to the image of Atlas on atlases, on the books, with him holding up the literal planet of the Earth. Um, but that's just a nice little detail of, uh, of Fry's influence there. But yeah, this story was a lovely find, and it's really great to have found the Beside the Fire uh, book because while a lot of the stories I see are ones we have already done, um, as I continue my search for more stories specifically of the seas, of the rivers, of lakes, um, that's good to know I have a few more options there because there are there is a lot of stuff I would love to adapt in um, this book of folklore, the treasury of folklore of the seas and rivers. Um, but so much of it is like world mythology, like it's got... Indonesian mythology and uh, Yoruban mythology, like a lot of African mythology and all of that is stuff I would love to dip my toe into as I have with the others, but I always there always needs to still be at least some connection to root back to Irish mythology because I don't want to just dive into something that I have no frame of reference for that would be biting off more than I could chew. Um. There's an, incre- like, there's an incredible section in this book um, where it talks about the seven seas and the various versions of the seven seas over the years. And it has a different goddess associated with each of the seven seas from depending on, from the culture where the respective sea is by the... Because there have been different... Uh, a, there have been different versions of the seven seas depending on the culture and because references to the seven seas literally go back like three and a half thousand years and but from our contemporary uh understanding of them which is the north south atlantic antarctic arctic north pacific south pacific and indian that's seven isn't it um there's different gods and goddesses associated with each one and i really wanted to do an episode of that i still might but they were from world mythologies that I would need to do a little bit more research in or else I'd just be robbing their bit. You know, it's one thing me drawing from sources and accepting the universality of it, but like that's something that they do really nicely and that's their thing. So I would need to find, I really like, and there was more I was reading about the seven seas that they didn't include that I would like to talk about, but I would need to find more of my version of it. Um, so it's really nice to find things like Beside the Fire and the other sources that are mostly drawn from in Yeats's Treasury of Folktales to just find those extra those extra good folktales that we haven't covered so far in one of our previous 160 episodes. But with that, I will wrap things up. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this tale of the Joint Eater even half as much as I did researching and writing it. Um, Next week, we will return to Grania Whale. We have part four, where we will be very much getting into Grania Whale's part in the rebellions of Ireland uh, during the conquest between England and Ireland and the leading to the end of Gaelic law in Ireland. Uh, another incredible quote about Grania Whale, and this will probably be the title for the next episode, is that she was known as a nurse to all rebellions. Uh, very, very good stuff still to come. We've definitely got like, I'd say about three or four more episodes of Guan Yuel, so we'll definitely have about three or more, three or four more folk tales of the sea if I can find good ones. Um, that's all to come, but thank you so much. Please do follow me on Instagram at Fireside Bard. 
email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com. Buy my book, Garden Sea. Uh, links are in the description below. You can buy it on, in Kindle form or on paperback from headstuff.org. We can deliver anywhere in the world. Uh, or support at headstuffpodcast.com. Link is also in the description below. I'll see you all. You'll hear me all next time. And remember, wherever you are and wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Thank <laughs> you.